Welcome to The Five of My Life with me, Nigel Marsh. As an author, ad man and theologian, I've always been interested in people's stories. Not just those with a high profile, but people from all walks of life, regardless of fame. Which is why I created this show. Each guest who takes the Five of My Life challenge chooses a favourite film, book, song, place and possession. They tell me their choices in advance so I can research them, but they don't tell me why they've chosen them. That's the subject of our conversation. It's amazing what you can learn when discussing someone's five choices. I hope you enjoy listening to the show as much as I enjoy making it. Mikey Robbins is one of Australia's best-loved entertainers. His response to the Five of My Life challenge was as intelligent and humorous as I expected, but also refreshingly open and disarming. So, Mikey Robbins, welcome to Five of My Life. Hi, Nigel. How are you, mate? Do you know what? I, I have never been better, and I... Li- yes, you're, you're, you're bouncing with vim and vigour oh, off the walls, Honestly, mate. I'm over-caffeinated. <laughs> but I love at seeing how my guests respond the different way to the Five of My Life Challenge. Right. And you were bloody hilarious. Really? when I asked you, yeah. you said, certainly, but how about this? Oh, how right. about you choose, as in I choose your five, I don't tell you what they are apart from on-air live, and then you retrospectively just as improv, make up the reasons why, the, why you've chosen them. I, I should probably point out I had been to lunch when you sent me that first well, email. Well, well, I think it's a great idea. So, so um, Mikey Robbins, you've chosen uh, Debbie Does Dallas and Mein Kampf. Um, tell us about you. <laughs> oh, God almighty. <laughs> the stupidest idea I've ever yeah, had. Yeah, I, I know. I, I, know, I, know. I always... Um, the weird thing about, about Debbie Does Dallas... No, no, no. No, no, no. It, it's probably the only... Porn movie that is so universally known that if you need to do a porn joke, even what, how many, I think it came out in the 70s, the 80s, you do a Debbie Does Dallas joke. It's the Hoover of porn films. It is. Well, actually, if you've seen it, there's quite a bit of Hoovering going on. Well, now, we're going to stick to the, um, the the format that's very dear to my heart. Please, um, mate, of course. Uh, and, and you're going to take us on a journey through the 60s, 70s and 80s. Ah, uh, yes, the bits I remember. And we've always start with a film. Uh, yes. And you've chosen the film that uh, many people uh, regard the greatest film ever made. Wow. It's the 1972 uh, film adaptation of Mario Puzo's 1969 novel, uh, the Godfather. One, one actually uh, sent you the email with my serious suggestions, and you said no one had said The Godfather before. I thought, come on, come on. I, you know, I, I looked at your podcast. You talked to a, you know, quite a few older white guys, guys of our generation is The Godfather, uh, men of a generation a little bit younger at Shawshank Redemption. They often mention that one. But The Godfather, well, of course, it, it's the 50th anniversary. Right. The best way I can describe The Godfather is to actually reference a, another thing from popular culture. It's an episode of Family Guy. And it's the one where they're in the panic room and they think they're going to die and it's their last statement. And Peter Griffin says, I don't care for the Godfather. Like, even though they're dying and, and Lois goes, what, what? And he goes, it insists upon itself. And I laughed and when I was coming in this morning, I was thinking about that and I went, yeah, it does. And I think that's one of the things I really like about the Godfather. From the start, they were going to make a masterpiece. There was no sense of, you know, we're going to make this gangster film, it's going to be a bit dark, and it's going to be this and that. No, they set out to make a masterpiece. Now, you read about it, like, when they're talking about, you know, setting up the lights, they're, they're talking about Caravaggio. And it does insist upon itself. It's long, 
it's not ponderous by any stretch of the imagination, but when you watch it, you know that you are watching people who intended to make a great work, not something that just through time and history has become recognised as a great work. Now, you, you look at films like Citizen Kane, which is you know, the same sort of thing. And it, I mean, that's, it's one of the reasons why. And, you know, and it's also too one of the few films where the sequel was as good as the first, and we don't talk about the third. Also, too, you've got me rabbiting on now. I suppose also, I mean, you know, I didn't see it when it came out because I was too young to get into an R-rated film. So I, I've only ever seen it once on the big screen, which is absolutely stunning. With that lighting, that Caravaggio stuff comes in. But also, too, it's, you know, it's filmed at a very interesting social time. A lot of people say, that like, you know, it was the, you know, the gangster film about, you know, the moral malaise in America at the time. That's not totally accurate. I mean, you also had, earlier than that, um, Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid about two outlaws. You had Warren Beatty's masterpiece, um, Bonnie and Clyde. And another film, which is really important, too, which I think gets overlooked, is uh, Peck and Pa's The Wild Bunch, all of which are about the crumbling of an external moral system of, of, of religion or, or particularly of, of law and order and, and, and governance. And which, you know, The Godfather caught in terms of being an early 70s film, but it still has that resonance today about what is morality. It's, it's, it's about family as well, isn't it? It is, it is about family. And also, too, it, there are these great moments, too, where you have to remind yourself they're sociopaths. Yeah. But the modern example is The Sopranos. And they would do that once every couple of weeks. They'd put a scene in where you suddenly go, oh, that's right, he's not a chubby family guy, he's a sociopath. And that's the great thing with... Um, with uh, the Godfather, you know, of course, you know the whole journey Michael Corleone goes through, the, the, you know, the disillusionment, and um, can we escape our, our breeding? It's a big movie, and I like that because you know we don't make big movies anymore. I mean, fortunately, we, you know, we do have streaming and we do have great stuff on television, but we don't make big grown-up films anymore. So you know, Pacino, God, how fantastic! All these people who went on to have incredible careers mm. because they were in or associated with The Godfather is uh, I have been researching you. Oh, thank you. And um, I'm a pom, and I've only been here twenty years. I didn't know about the Castanet Club. Oh my God! But. I have seen two programs about the Castanet Club in the last two weeks. Wow, it seems to be a bit of a Godfather vibe there, where it's what? not it's not Pacino and, no, no. And, and Keaton, but it's Robbins and Abbott. Um, could, could you explain what it is to people who are listening? Gosh, well, it was a large band made up of musicians of varying calibre from... Um, Kathy Bluff, uh, Kid Calame on violin, who's an exceptional uh, musician, down to me on Latin percussion, and I was not a very good musician. But yeah, by the time you've got eight people on stage, you know, blasting out a song, you could lose me in the mix. And then, as well as that, there were comedians: Angela Moore, who played saxophone; her character Shirley Purvis was there; Warren Coleman, who was a bowling man. Now, Warren is best known these days as a scriptwriter with George Miller, was part of the scriptwriting team for Happy Feet, which won an Oscar. Um, and it wasn't just the band, though. It was also a, a loose collective of um, hangers-on artists, chefs, because, you know, they used to serve food at the club. <laughs> and it was, um, it was very much a sort of 80s, post-punk, new wave. But the songs you played were very much songs from our childhood. It was a rambling, eight-headed hydra of, of fun. And, and, and I, I actually had to write a piece about it recently. And I said, you know, at a time, you know, particularly that period of the 80s, when a lot of Australian comedy was um, quite bleak and almost sort of Weimar Republic Germanesque, 
The Castanet Club were relentlessly positive. A lot of people came out of that, including Lano and Woodley, also um, the Umbilical Brothers and uh, many members of, of, of the strong uh, female cast are mainstays of, of Australian TV and cinema to this day. We're going to move to your second choice on Five of My Life. And having chosen one of the greatest films ever made, you've chosen one of the greatest books ever written, Joseph Heller's Catch-22, 1961. Uh, tell us why you've chosen that. It's one of those books that I read at a very important time in my life uh, as a teenage boy. When you're starting to you know, buck against the system, you're getting a little of that anti-authoritarian vibe in you. And for me... It, managed to combine that sort of anti-authoritarian, black humour, um, very funny book, and also to, you know, in reference to what I'm doing now, even though World War II, when we look back at it now, was only, you know, 20, 30 years before, it was also an, an historical novel. Mind you, it, it's, I always think about, I mean, Joseph Hill wrote, you know, some fine books afterwards, but geez, you know, when, when, when you come out of the blocks with a cracker like that, it's a hard act to follow. It's one of my favourite quotes as a journalist. I've read a number of Heller's books, and he published a book called God Knows in yes. 1984. Yes, 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 I remember that. Yeah. And a journalist said to him, um, "You know, I mean, it's, yeah, I mean, it's, a, it's an all right book, Joseph, but but it, it's not, it's not a work of genius. You you just haven't written a book as good as Catch Twenty Two since." Mm. And he said. Nor is anyone else. Yes. <laughs> well, uh, you know, it, it, it is one of those things where Heller comes out with a book out of left field, and now it's, what, six, well, it's, it's the same age as me. 60 years later, it's still in print. It's still being studied. A bit like, bit like The Godfather, too. When you look at it, there are certain presentations, of, particularly of women, that we would not be comfortable with today, but you, you know, and, and there are times when I say, okay, fine, that will actually write something off my list. With that, you can look at it within its time, and you can look at it also as a book that was actually talking about wartime behaviour as well. It's also, and this is one of the things people overlook about um, uh, Catch-22, because you know, unlike, say, Hemingway or uh, Virginia Woolf, you know, some of the great uh, writers, it's not a stylistic breakthrough like Hemingway, but it's actually beautifully written. And, and the central question, as Yusarian <laughs> says, is what does a sane man do in an insane society? How can that ever not be relevant? Well, let's face it. I mean, the old Chinese proverb, may you live in interesting times, or curse. Things have never been more insane than they are right now. I was having this conversation with my wife the other night. and um, This is Laura. Laura, yes. And, yeah, she was talking about how, you know, the insanity of, of what we're living through. And I said, I said, yeah. I said, but, you know, let's just not forget, you know, our grandparents lived through the lead up to World War Two. And she went, yeah, yes, but they didn't have climate change. I went, oh, yeah, that's right. That's, you know, you're old enough to remember the 90s. Remember that weird period, you know, in between the wall coming down and the towers coming down, which, by the way, is copyright for a novel I'm working on, between, between the wall and the towers. We really didn't have that much to worry about. Um, AIDS was still a problem, but we seemed to be working on therapies. And it was like, a, it, was a, it was very similar to the 1890s. It was like a, a gilded age. And now we live in a Western democracy is falling apart. Every time you turn around, there's a new 
disease. I mean, <laughs> monkeypox. Yeah, indeed. And and the planet's on fire. How did we end up here? I was talking about a book I liked when I was a teenage boy. Do you know what Catch-22 was originally called? Yazarian Secret? Oh, my word, no. Uh, it was called Catch-18. And it was published in 19, the first chapter in 1955 in a magazine as Catch-18. Really? He hadn't written the rest of it. And, and then it took, you know, six years to, to write the rest of the book. And by the time it came to actually publish it, you go, no, no, you can't, you can't call it Catch-18 because, I don't know, there's a pop group or someone else yeah. has written a play. So they were thrashing around for numbers. And they chose 22 for a whole bunch of of sort of not important reasons. So he, the book is Catch 18, but we, we don't now say that's a catch. I mean, isn't that incredible how with a, just history changes? And it makes me want to ask you, you weren't christened Mikey. You were christened uh, Michael? M-I-K-E-L. So, so tell us about that, mate. Well, for no, for no reason whatsoever. No. I mean, it was 61, so I can't even say my mother was on acid. Yeah. Um, not that she ever was. She did like a Chardonnay, though. It was just Mike with an L, M-I-K-E-L. Um, as I've gotten older, I see it occasionally. Oh, Mickle. Mickle. No, 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 it's Michael. It's, it's Michael. It's just Michael. But, but it, I've, t- I've told the story before. It was Triple J early days. I, it was a girlfriend before my wife. I was going up to Newcastle for ABC Open Day. And, you know, I was like, you know, I just started dating this girl. And, you know, I'm on Triple J. It's an ABC Open Day. It's my hometown. And the local ABC uh, breakfast announcement, oh, please welcome to the stage, local boy, Newcastle University, Newcastle High. You can hear him on Triple J, love around the country, Mickle Robines. And, and she, she, whispered, she whispered in my ear, they love you here, don't they? <laughs> yeah, uh, but uh, Mikey was sort of a nickname I picked up at uni. And I'll never forget my first midnight to dawn on Triple J. And it's just sort of stuck. And um, I know I'm in trouble if my wife calls me Michael. Right. Right, Michael. Who finished the milk, Michael? Never a problem in our place. I don't drink milk. Ah, and and, and are you dairy intolerant? No, no, no. God, no. I love ice cream and cheese. I just don't like the flavour of milk. I think I was milk monitor at primary school. Remember... Did you, did you have milk monitors? Yes, in the, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. And the smell of that warm milk we used to drink at recess has never left my nostrils. <laughs> well, we, we, we've done the 70s and we've done the 60s. We're now going to move to the 80s for your song on yes. Five My Life. We add every single song to the Five My Life Spotify playlist. Check it out. It's fantastic. Uh, you have chosen a song from one of my favourite bands. You've chosen This Is The Day, The The, 1983. Well, here's the strange thing. They're not one of my favourite bands. Right. I've never actually owned a, the, the album. Ah. But a friend of mine had this album in Railway Street. Oh, this, this is going to kill every young person, where me and three other friends were uh, renting a three-bedroom terrace house for $45 a week. Nice. Yes. Um, and um, Stephen lived in this fantastic old apartment over, over some old stables, actually. He played it, and I remember listening to it, and there was a sense of melancholy there that really st- struck with me. And it's a song about memory. The weird thing is that even though I've never owned the album, it's always been on my playlist, particularly since I got an iPod, then an iPhone. So I've always had it. and it's a, So that means for over the past 20 years, I'd say probably a month hasn't gone by where it hasn't come. It's part of, part of my favourites when I hit shuffle. And as a song, there's you know, that fantastic lyric, you know, you could have done every, anything if you wanted to, and all your friends and family think that you're lucky. But the sight that they will never see is when you're left alone with the memories that hold your life together, like glue 
that's a that's a lyric that resonates with you, no matter what age you're at. So so when you look back, because Five of My Life is a reflective show, yeah, uh, uh, and we're talking about um, what other people see uh, compared to what you feel and remember. What what goes through your mind? Well, that's that's interesting because um, there are memories we all have, which we will never share, and I won't today. I'm sorry. Mm-hmm. Uh, they're usually horrible. Right. And they usually are the things that have helped make you who you are. Actually, I find the concept of memory quite fascinating. Maybe I'm just getting older. How much of our memory actually is memory and how much of it is a narrative we construct for ourselves to justify who we are? I can look at my recollections of certain events from 30 years ago and another person's recollection of events from 30 years ago, and they don't quite match up. I find this quite an intriguing concept. How much of memory is subjective recollection and how much of it is objective narration well 100 percent of it is subjective way back i used to study this where the only thing that is unique to the individual is your memory mm. so so that there you know your cells are changing your you know other people have been a dj other people have uh. lived in sydney other people have done a whole host of things that you and i have done um but no one has got the unique memories Made up or not. Yeah, that, made, that, up, that, made that, up or not. Yeah, that's right. Old school mate of mine recently wrote a really interesting article where he talked about um, losing a parent, an, an older parent. What propelled his sense of loss was the loss of memories that that parent has that you don't have of yourself, which then expands to, to, to a much further point is, you know, yes, we all have our own personal memories, but are we also part of the collection of memories that those we've come in touch with? Is it almost like a, an existence outside of ourself? And then also, too, at the same time, I'm looking at my mother-in-law, who's um, 91, has dementia, and her memory is going. It's almost like I can see it in, in, you know, in her family's face that those memories are going as well. So th- there's, it's, it's a wonderful, uh, rich area. That There's an interesting philosophy about the length of your own personal life so when you we're all headed to the hole in the ground yeah and, yeah, when, I, and when you die you die but you go well hold on you don't because hopefully laura if, if you predecease will remember you and then oh I, you I would put money on that <laughs> but when the last person who, on earth who has remembered you goes so i i don't remember my great great grandfather i don't even know his name no. right does when the last person's got a memory of mikey does that mean then that's when you poof, you cease to exist. But does that, but does that mean the Duke of Wellington's still alive? Well, well yes, it does. In, in, on this definition, yeah, yeah. And, and and so one of the greatest instincts of humour, I mean, obviously, is to belong, but also is to survive in some weird. Which is why people have children and all that thing oh, yeah. is to perpetuate themselves. So if if you you know write some classic book uh, like the Catch Twenty Two or make a film like The Godfather, will you live forever? Because people in a hundred years' time will be saying bloody hell, and, and then there's then there's another thing too of of, of 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 some people who have no sense of that in their life and then are discovered later. You know, the obvious examples are Van Gogh, obviously, yes, yeah, which is interesting is you know the, the idea of, of of having a life in memory that is opposite to to the life you had. There's another thing though, and I'm I'm going to I'm going to take over for a second here. Excellent about um, this is the day. I did a little bit of research. Yeah, nice know. work, Robbins. And um, one of the things about it, one of the most haunting things about it, is it's, it's one of those rare pop songs that features the piano accordion. Uh-huh. So I made a list up last night before I came in, and I think you'll know most of these songs. We're around at the same generation. Great songs that have pi- the, the much underused piano accordion. Right, hit me with it. 
God Only Knows, The Beach Boys from Pet Sounds. God yes. Only Knows. Yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. Gotta Get Up by Harry Nilsson, which most people would know as the theme song to Russian Doll. It's got piano accordion in it. Constant Craving, Katie Lang. Yes. Road to Nowhere, Talking Heads has that incessant that sort yeah. of Cajun-style piano accordion. Boy in the Bubble, Paul Simon. A Pair of Brown Eyes and Old Man Dragged by the Pogues. Well, the Pogues was a little bit of a giveaway. You knew at some stage there was going to be some piano accordion. Yeah. And here's a beautiful one. Fourth of July, Ashby Park, Sandy by Bruce Springsteen. So that's my list of great pop songs with piano accordion. So the over-index is on great songs. That list mm. is pretty impressive. Mm. Um, regrets. Mate. I've had a few. Tell me about some of them. You've had a few. Name one. Gosh, it's, it's a general one. And I actually talked about this with um, with Angela Turns and Ian Rodgerson on their podcast, Suddenly Senior. There's a certain period of my life where... Um, I was an arrogant little shit. Uh, is this at the height of your fame or? Uh, leading up to it. Right. A lot of that was insecurity. A lot of that was insecurity. And um, I don't say I was rude to people, but yeah, I look back and, you know, I probably would have told me off a bit. Apart from that, regrets, um, too few to mention. Actually, I'll tell you what, most regrets I've had for having a, having a few. <laughs> having <laughs> having a, a few too many. There's quite a few drunken moments in my life I'd like to take back. We'll just leave it at that. I, yeah, I could have been nicer to people. There's something wonderful about life teaches you how to live it. Oh, shit, yeah. And, and, and you go, you can't be, you are a, I imagine, nicer, more intelligent uh, 61-year-old than you were a 21-year-old. Doesn't mean you were horrible at 21, but life just would, teaches you how to live. I would like to think that. Look, I'm going to ask you, I grew up very, very poor. So when I did get money, I did overcompensate. <laughs> and I was a bit of a dick. Well, but, but isn't that, I, I think it's very impressive that, self-awareness that one can admit that but also then not write oneself off no so so no um, i mean i I, i'd like to think i've you know i've done more good than harm (laughs) i would think i you know so it's not a great epitaph (laughs) (laughs) well well, i'm just publishing a book called uh, smart and stupid and you you do a podcast called heroes and howlers is Mm. there's you know in life the running theme is a dichotomy no but nothing is all good nothing is all bad can you tell us about your podcast mate it's with uh, paul wilson it's got a good origin story tim ferguson from the doug anthony all-stars tim has these regular lunches and about two and a half years ago uh I, I was the first to arrive, and so was Paul at lunch. Now, I just finished working on my second book, which was a history book. And Paul and I were the last to leave. And we spent probably about two hours just sitting around at the Harold Park Hotel telling our favourite stories from history. By that stage, I realised that Paul was actually an academic. So I sent him um, a copy of my book, book, which thank God he did, because he pointed out two major historical errors, <laughs> which I had to fix. Then the idea was, well, I'm a, I'm a nerd, with an, with an interest in history and, and and you're an historian who's got a sense of humour, why don't we do a podcast together? And and so the idea was that um, we wanted to look at the bizarre bits of history, you know, the strange little turns and twists and, you know, the stuff that often gets left out of the big books. You know, we tend to look at history through the, the prism of great heroes and great villains and... and, and we leave out the idiots. I, I, I love your podcast, mate. The, the, the one from the, from the recent episode where the German spy leaves his briefcase. Oh, yes. <laughs> you go, such is, you know, history made by yeah. some goose. Heinrich Albert, he, he was Germany's top spy in New York in World War One, and he left his briefcase with all of his plots in it on a trolley car because yeah. he was too tight to spring for a cab. <laughs> I love those moments. I love those moments in history. 
the dumb. We're moving to your fourth choice on Five of My Life, which is The Place. Uh, and you have chosen Port Douglas in far north Queensland. Explain yourself, man. Ah, mate. I remember the first time I went there. And we had some, uh, had some mates already there and um, got off the plane in Cairns. And I picked up a hire car. Um, I don't drive. My wife was driving. And yammering, yammering, yammering. And there's, there's this one bend in the road between Cairns and Port Douglas that you, that you come around. And just the ocean just rises out and you just breathe out. And, um, and that's what Port Douglas is. And I'll never go, I got there. Cause, you know, I'd left in, left in winter and I had a pair of boots on and I was, I was walking down the street. In fact, going to the pub to meet a mate was already there. He was actually walking up as well. He'd been, been there for a week. And he just tapped me on the shoulder and went, mate, slow down. You're on port time. <laughs> and it's, it's just, um, it is one of those magical places. It's still like, yes, yes, there's, there is Nautilus. You know, there, there are fancy, fancy restaurants. But also to this great Jade Inn Chinese restaurant there is fantastic. Um, it, it suits all budgets. You know, I've, I, I've, I've been up there on, on the on the let's let's blow everything budget, and I've been up there on the oh, let's just get an Airbnb budget. It's got a great church, isn't it? Lovely church, and of course it's got the it's got you know the the, the, the club, the, the ex servicemen's club. There's the theme in many of your comments around uh, booze and tucker. Oh yeah, uh, um, talk a little bit about that. If oh, you wouldn't mind. Well, and, and you said you don't drive. Is that is that as in you don't drive now, or you? I've I've never driven. What? Well, why on earth not? I have no idea. Mate, no. Okay, here's the thing. Um, <laughs> Has anyone ever told you? It's, or, or, it's un Australian. Yeah, <laughs> it's one of those things. Um, I as, as a young man, I didn't have the money for lessons. I was I was incredibly poor, insecure. I I, I got behind my mother's car once, and we had a couple of lessons, and it didn't go well. We had a slightly fractious relationship, so probably not the best person to try and teach me to drive. My father died when I was ten, so I didn't have that sort of male thing in the house, and. Um, I tried when I was 40. I, I was okay. Really, here's the thing about learning to drive. You should never learn to drive when you have a concept of mortality. Right. <laughs> when you're 18, you're indestructible, fine. When you're 40 and you actually have had friends or parents or relatives die yeah. and you've even contemplated your own death, that is not the time to learn to drive. But, um, yeah, look I'm, I'm, look, I'm a drinker. I don't drink as much as I used to because I, I can't. <laughs> you can't because because you get you get absolutely bungalowed or because nah, it, you, you, you feel ill. Or I what? can't back up. Right, I can't back up. And also too, um, it's sort of you know I, I'm writing at the moment and um, I can't do a couple of hours in front of the computer with a fuzzy head. So when you say you can't back up, I, I haven't had a drink for twenty years. But um, wow, the the concept of the two day hangover. Oh my, that. Uh, um, you go, hold on, this is not fair. I think I'm going to go to bed having had the worst day of my life, but tomorrow is a new day. You go, no, 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 welcome to round two actually, of your hangover. Actually, I've just been doing some research for, for my next book about hangovers, and um, uh, one of the cures of the ancient Greeks was uh, deep-fried canary. <laughs> yeah, it sounds ridiculous, but how many guys with a hangover have gone for some KFC? <laughs> but my, my favourite hangover cure was one for centuries in Ireland, where if you had too much to drink, you would get your mates, you'd go down to, to the beach and they would bury you up to your head in the cold, wet sand. I just kept thinking, I hope they remembered where they left you before the bloody tide came in. Um, we're moving to your last choice on oh, Five My, my Life. And uh, it's 
usually my favourite choice because people get, tend to get rather personal. Not not many people choose their Ferrari or whatever else. Uh, and you have <laughs> chosen a portrait of your dad. Yes, done by Adam. Cull- God, the wonderful, sadly departed, the wonderful artist Adam Cullen. Describe it and then tell us about that, mate. Many years ago, the early nineties. Um, yeah, yeah. Good Newsweek was on TV, and I was doing breakfast, so you know, my profile was was starting to rise. I was at a barbecue in Balmain, and a friend of my wife's sister was dating Adam. And Adam came over and said, you'd like to paint me for the Archibald. And I went, yeah, right, yeah, sure, sure, yeah, great. Then I went home and Googled his stuff, and I went, wow. He's great. Amazing. Yeah. So that's how I met Adam. And the first time he was hung in the Archibald was his his portrait of me. Now, I've... I had a speech about this a few years ago at the Archibald, and by, see, by that stage, yes, I, yeah, I was doing radio on TV. So I was used to photo shoots where you, you, know, you, you have a shave, you do your hair, you put your best shirt on, you present yourself as you want to be seen. I was, I was living down in Bondi at the time. Adam turned up, took a few Polaroids, took a few sketches, and that was it. And so on the night of the Archibald, I went and saw it, and the portrait was life-size, and it was just a few lines. It was you know, just very stark, Adam style, and he'd captured... Everything about me that I tried to hide. He, right. He captured the tiredness. He captured. It captured the insecurity. with just a few lines on my face, and it freaked. It didn't freak me out. It was, it was like it was that. It was that moment of you. You know that dream when you're you're sitting a uni exam and suddenly you're naked. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. It was. It was. It was that. It was like that. I, I felt like that. And and um, and then he um he asked me if I. I mean, I, I loved the painting. I loved it. I mean, you know, it's that thing where you look at something and you go, "Well, that's not." Well, actually, that is me. Yeah, that is me. But I could, I, I couldn't have it. Could not have it in my house. Even, even if it was flattering, I could, it was just huge. It was just no. But he won with Wenham, not you, the bastard. Oh, yeah. <laughs> what's wrong with Robbins? I know. Well, I, and the Wenham one was was brilliant. Oh, fantastic! And, and and but he did give me a small head and shoulders version of of, of that one, which I, I keep in my office, but I still can't hang it on the wall. Yeah. It's it's just down the floor. When he won with the Wenham, this is so Adam. I got a text room, and uh, you can bleep out the swearing. He said, "I fucking won." <laughs> but your but your picture is of your dad. Well, so how did that happen? That happened because Adam did a book with Chopper Reed, the Australian gangster, <laughs> as you do, called Hooky the Cripple. Adam was copping flack over this, you know. He, even though he had, Adam had this image as the enfant terrible. Actually, Adam was far more canny than that. Yeah, Adam knew how to market himself. Anyway, so Adam said, "Mate," he said, "I'm copping some flack." He said. Do you mind doing the book launch? I went, oh, shit, no, mate. No, fine, fine, fine. I'd been at an exhibition of his just before that with some some drawings, which I'd, I really loved his biro stuff, which brings me to my dad. He said, what can I do for you? I said, well, I've got this picture of my dad. Now, my father died when I was 10. That was quite the athlete. Oh, so I was a bit of a disappointment. But he was also the guy that emceed all the events at the surf club, the leagues club. And I think it was part of dad that wanted to be a funny guy. So I had a picture of dad on the stage. Um, emceeing an event, I think probably at, at, at South Juniors Leagues Club in, oh, sorry, South Leagues Club in, in Newcastle, not the great South City in, in Sydney. And um, I said, mate, just give me a, a biro, you know, just give me a biro drawing. I'll give you the picture. So, so we spoke on the phone. So I brought the picture along. And a couple of weeks later, get a phone call. He said, I said, oh, that 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 drawing's done. He said, he said, why don't you? He was living up in the Blue Mountains. He said, why don't you come up? the Blue Mountains, and uh, I'll give it to you. And my wife and I said, yeah, yeah we'll have a day trip. We'll go up and see Adam. So we go to his studio, and bugger me, he's, he's done a painting, a huge painting of my father on stage with a suit on. He has, hasn't painted the microphone. He's, he's, it's obviously someone in, in, in full flight telling a joke. 
in a suit and tie with um, wavy black hair and thick black eyebrows. And so people, when they first see the picture, think it's me. Do you know what? I mean, I'm looking at it now, and, and when you first sent it to me, I, I thought, hold on, mate, I thought you picked your dad, and it's you. So it, I, I had that experience as well. And that's that's why I really love, love the painting, because not only is it um, a representation of my dad, but there's also elements of me in there as well. And, and 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 how I work, and you know, and maybe my father did, did want to do what I did, or I, I don't know. I mean, my dad died when I was ten. I mean, he was that guy that at parties he always had the best stories. You know, he was the funny guy. It is an object that has you know come from you know obviously I, I well I could never get rid of it. You know, it's, it's a painting from you know one of Australia's greatest modern artists of my father, but there's also me in there as well. Yet again, the fifth choice has delivered. It's a, it's a beautiful story. It's a beautiful painting. Yeah. Before we move on to the surprise six question. Oh, all right. Oh, good I am going to ask you one more question. Please, mate. Which is, you've mentioned insecurity on a number of occasions, yeah. uh, unprompted, um, so I'm now going to prompt. Talk to me about that. You, you are, are you still insecure? Uh, if you aren't, why were you? And if you still are, why are you? You're a talented, lovely rooster. Um, yeah. what, what's that all about? I don't know. I don't know. It was just being a fat kid. Uh, well, were you a fat kid? Oh, I, read, I, was... I read that you weren't a fat kid. No, I was a fat kid. I mean, having looking back at it, you know, um, you know, comparatively, you were compar- as slim as a matchstick. Yeah. Well, you know, you know, you're looking at a man who once got to 163 kilograms. Which, that's a yeah, that's good work. I mean, I had smaller comedians orbiting me. <laughs> I, was, I was enormous. But um, did you become chubby because you're insecure, or why you insecure nah. because you were chubby? Chicken egg? I don't know. I, I don't know. I, I just, you know, I, I, I just. Ate a lot. I was lazy. I was used as a coaching tool. If if I beat another kid around the oval, they had to do two more laps. You know. So and you know, I don't. I don't know. Why? What? Why are we insecure? I don't, I don't think the idea of telling jokes came as uh, as a defence mechanism. I I'm, I saw my father got attention from telling jokes uh, on my mother's side. My mother comes from a large Irish Catholic family. I'm mean, not that you know. Anyone actually, my grandfather did used to play the fiddle. Not educated, but my aunts and uncles. Um, but storytellers, I would see that you got attention from making other people laugh. And I remember as a 10-year-old, 11-year-old, being able to tell stories that made my aunts and uncles laugh, and I could have seen it at the big table. <laughs> um, looking back at it now, it's been over 30 years since I had a day job. You know, the last time I had a job was 1988, 89. I was washing dishes. So, you know, I've managed to fund my life by having fun which and it's still fun 90% of the world would envy you we're going to have to move to the sixth question which is who would you like to hear on Five of My Life next and why can it be someone I don't know absolutely they have to be alive we can't dig them up John Birmingham the writer John Birmingham and why Uh, Birmingham's got a great dry sense of humour um, he, he writes mostly fantasy sci-fi books today, but his book Leviathan, I think, is, is one of the great works of, of Australian fiction. Um, he's a erudite, witty, clever guy. That's thank you so much for that suggestion, um, Michael Manson Robbins. Mason. My God, alive! I, could I, I was how never, many I'm, more of your names can I, I get yeah, wrong? I, I was never <laughs> part of the Manson family. <laughs> Mason is my my mother's um, maiden name. In fact, my full name is Michael Mason William Robbins because I'm a confirmed Catholic. Right, William is my father's name. Um, I took that as my confirmation name. Uh, well, I'm just going to say Mikey. Yes. Mikey, thank you, mate, for coming on and sharing your five on five of my life. Absolute pleasure, Nigel. Cheers, mate. Thank you for listening to this episode. 
If you follow Five of My Life, you might enjoy my latest book, Smart, Stupid and Sixty. In it, I write about a number of the issues discussed on the show. It's the 20-year follow-on from my first book, Fat, Forty and Fired. If you have any feedback on the book or suggestions for the show, please get in touch via my website, nigelmarsh.com.